Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The world is a hard place to understand and navigate a problem that all animals encounter. What is to be done? Is this good to eat? Where is the sun? In a fascinating new book, Sentient, nature filmmaker Jackie Higgins explores how animals figure out the world around themselves and what their remarkable sensory capacities say about our own senses. We'll talk about the groundbreaking scientific experiments that taught us to understand our sense of balance, appreciate our remarkable eyesight, and discover our circadian rhythms. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You probably remember from school the familiar five senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. But filmmaker Jackie Higgins' new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, vastly expands that sensorium. Humans both have more senses than we commonly think about, consider proprioception or our sense of our bodies, and animals have different capabilities that give them wildly different ways of making sense of their environments. The book also offers a lesson in humility. How we perceive the world is just one way among thousands, tuned to particular frequencies and with a specific set of capabilities. Here to share what she learned, we're joined by Jackie Higgins. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alexis. It's nice to be here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for writing this book. It's totally fascinating. Let's let's start (laughs) maybe with our... Thank you very much. Oh, for sure. Um, (laughs) Let's maybe start in an... Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm, I'm beaming in from Kenya at the moment. I've spent the day looking at rhino. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, uh, I know. Amazing. I'm, I, I'm in a place in Kenya, a place called um, the Liwa Barana Conservancy, where they have more black rhino than white rhino. So it's it's a pretty special place to be. Anyway, oh. here I am. <laughs> oh, wow. Are you making a new film or is this about our sensory perception? No. This is, this is, I'm always interested. It's, it's perhaps research for another book. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> Fingers cool. crossed. Um, well, this one, I kind of wanted to start with uh, one of the simplest examples here, which is our sense of smell and that best friend of mankind, the dog. Um, how do you compare the human sense of smell to the canine sense of smell? Well, I think there's, I think um, before I started doing the research for the book, um, I would say that the dog is far superior and a, a bloodhound, which is the character I use to explore our sense of smell, is undeniably a far better scent tracker than we are. Um, 
But there's a myth that was propagated um, by a chap called Paul Broca hundreds of years ago when he was studying our, um, the human brain. He, he's famous for pickling many, many human brains in jars and keeping them. And I think even his brain ended up being pickled after his death. Anyway, <laughs> he, he set this myth going that a part of our brain that deals with smell is, is, um, is small. And he set up this myth that we are really bad smellers. And so the chapter kind of goes step through, step by step, um, with various studies that science, scientists have been doing in the last, you know, um, couple of decades, that um, that basically say that we're much better at smell than we would hmm. give ourselves credit for. Yeah, you know, how do the chemical receptors in our noses actually work? <laughs> so, so like with, um, so we have um, very many. Um, uh, different um, um, sensors in our nose to pick up different chemicals. And they literally snag the chemicals out, our, out of the air. So as we take an inhalation, um, the scents, the little scent molecules waft up our nose and get snagged by these sensors. And um, the sensor then sends um, um, an electric signal to the brain. And what's extraordinary is that um, from a molecule landing on one of these sensors, it's only two synapses before the information reaches the um, olfactory uh, bulb. So smell, ha we have a really um, immediate connection from the external signal to um, an internal um, um, uh, result in our brain. And what we perceive to be cognitively, you know, grandma's house, fresh baked bread or, you know, uh, fresh cut <laughs> grass. Like those things are actually lots of different molecules, right, that our brains then assemble into the conceptual package of like what that smell is. What that absolutely, I use a damask rose as an example, which has, you know, hundreds of volatile, um, of those little volatile chemicals. Um, volatile simply means flying around in the air. And um, so, yes, so then we then our brain is absolutely brilliant. And that's one of the advantages we do have as our species. Our brain is rather brilliant at um, identifying and um, separate smells and fragrances. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to start with smell is that in my own life, I had one of the wildest experiences, like a very common experience now of when I had COVID, I lost my sense of smell. Yeah, and, me too. Wow. That was really, uh, it felt like being in an Oliver Sacks book. You know, I put my nose into a bag of coffee, inhaled deeply. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. nothing. Same. And, I was so upset when my coffee disappeared. Yes. Yeah. And right. too. Yeah. And what would you, like, do we now at this point, do we and, know enough about, is that, that blockage is obviously happening at the nose level, right? Not like at the brain yeah. level. So, um, well, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically um, whether scientists have actually unraveled what 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 COVID has specifically done to our scent tackle, uh, sensing tackle. But yes, it's, um, but it's, I mean, essentially, our, my taste was still working, mm -hmm. but my but my um, sense of smell had gone. And what that revealed is this um, notion that also I explore in the book that this. Flavor, the sense of flavor, which is a mix of um, taste and smell. Um, and 
Um, so for example, the flavor of your coffee, the reason it tastes so terrible, it tastes so terrible is the flavor's gone because you can't smell any longer. Mm-hmm. So you're, you basically chew these, um, you know, piece of chocolate and um, these little scents, um, molecules waft up the back of back of your nose they call it retronasal um, olfaction and these um these these land on those little scent snagging senses i was talking about and then inform your brain that um you know certain um of certain molecules in your mouth and you're hoodwinked to thinking that you're tasting these things on your tongue whereas in fact you're using your smell um senses so it's really um when proust was talking about his madeleine the taste of the madeleine he was actually really talking about smell majority um the majority of flavor is smell so that's why it's grim having covid right one thing that's interesting is that for the species that you use to examine the sense of of taste, that is to say catfish, which apparently <laughs> scientists refer to, at least some uh, one in your book refers to as a swimming tongue, they actually yeah. are, you right? Their bodies are covered with taste buds, right? Oh, yeah. So they're, they're, um, they're absolutely chock-a-block covered with taste buds. And that, you know, very similar to the taste buds on our tongue, um, because we, of course, share a common evolutionary ancestor. So, um, so as they swim through the water, they pick up these little taste molecules on the skin of their um, of their body, and they can then, according to whether a taste molecule has reached right flank quicker than their left flank, they know where their prey is further up. So they can taste track their prey through the kind of murky, soupy waters of the Amazon or where, wherever the cat... I chose to concentrate on the Goliath catfish because it was such fun because this catfish is immense. And so um, to have him swimming through, you know, the idea of him being just a gigantic swimming tongue, um, you know, plotting his way through the soupy <laughs> waters of the Amazon was too good to resist. We're talking about animal senses and what they tell us about our own with Jackie Higgins, author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. And we'd love to hear from you. What have you always wondered about how you sense the world? Or what have you noticed about how your pet or another animal that you've encountered experiences the world? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And, of course, the emails forum at kqed.org. Before we get to the break, I do want to get to dogs' olfactory systems. Back to them just for, for one sec, which is to talk about are, are their noses physiologically different from a human nose that makes them better at smelling? Yes. So there was um, a chap who... Um, um, who studied the dog's nose, he calls it the perfect scent capture device. And um, he looks at the aerodynamics of how these um, scent molecules get schnaffled up by the dog's nose. And if you look at a dog's nose, you'll see that it has, um, it's shaped like a little comma. So the, the dog can inhale, but what's brilliant is when it exhales, it doesn't exhale on top of the scent that it's trying to kind of draw up into its nose. It shunts the air sideways. And even better, it creates these little vortices that are effectively spinning kind of cyclones of air that suck up these um, scent um, molecules into its nose. So if we were to invent a, a scent capture device, 
we need look no further than the bloodhounds or any dog's nose. And can you maybe (laughs) talk just a little bit, too, about how good humans actually do turn out to be at at smelling? I mean, in the book, we're talking about uh, more than a trillion odors that humans might be able to distinguish between. Crazy, huh? This was a very recent study done by the um, the Rocker, the Rockefeller um, scent survey, um, and basically um, by a very kind of clever, the, the scientists um, put different scents in um, test tubes and asked people to discriminate between different scents, and they used um, a clever kind of mathematical setup to discover that we are able to discriminate between a trillion different scents, which if you think of the sensory pecking order in terms of um, hearing, most auditory scientists would say that we could hear, discriminate between uh, tens of thousands of auditory tones. Most visual scientists might say that we can um, discriminate between millions of colors. But here with our nose, which we always forget about, we think we're rather useless, but with our nose, we're able to discriminate between a trillion different scents. And by the way, that's the conservative estimate. Um, the scientists think it's it's much more than that. So interesting. I mean, what good <laughs> is being able to discriminate between a trillion different scents? on an evolutionary basis? Well, well, I mean, food, poisons, um, what's good to eat, but also, you know, who smells good. I think we're led by our nose in ways that we don't. And this was a point that a lot of the chapters make about our senses. We take a lot of our senses for granted. I use the quote up at the top of the book by Leonardo da Vinci um, that says, we look without seeing, um, we hear without listening, we touch without feeling, and we often inhale without awareness of odor or fragrance. But, um, and that's the case. So we're, we're, we're inhaling and sensing these things, but we often don't kind of give it much attention. We're talking about animal senses and what they tell us about our own. Started off with smelling. We're going to get to so much more. We're joined by Jackie Higgins, author of the new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. We want to hear from you. What have you always wondered about how you sense the world? You can give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how animals sense the world. And of course, we're also animals. So we're talking about how we sense the world, too, with Jackie Higgins, author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. And I wanted to bring in our first caller, Weyaka 
from Santa Rosa. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Oh, my gosh, I love this topic so much. Um, and that <laughs> vision of the giant tongue swimming through the water. Ah, disgusting, but also <laughs> wonderful, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, it, it was Thank you, Ayaka. Fascinating at the same time, my God. But what I have always found really fascinating in my own life is how the sense of smell has impacted my memory, both good and, you know, bad. Like, I... You'll just be driving down the road and I'll get a waft of something and it brings me right back to a certain period in my life. Usually it's joyful. Sometimes it isn't. I I have this memory. I love the smell of rubber dolls, like baby dolls. <laughs> they do <laughs> smell delicious. That's a new one on me. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, it brings me back to this time, like this first Christmas I had when I was four years old, and we were really poor, and I was given a baby doll. And I loved that doll so much. It was like one of three presents. And I... I love that doll so much. It was the first doll I'd ever received. Mm. And to this day, and I'm wow. 60 years old, to this day, I still, every time I smell baby doll rubber, it just yeah. it brings me back. I do to know what you mean, joyful. actually. It's so interesting. It just brings yes. me right back to it. And then the, I do have a question for you. Reason. Yeah, yeah, please. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Shoot. No, I'd love to hear the scientific reason that um so, the other thing so, i was re- thinking about go ahead i'm sorry i keep interrupting you go well ahead. and then ask me let, uh, let's start but i mean it's um i this this um chapter i so i i did two chapters on smell i did one on the blood hand that we've alluded to but i also did one on the giant peacock of the night which is this like, incredible european moth with a large the largest european moth and through this creature i explore our sense of desire, but also I talk about um, smell as this, it's been described by um, a neuroscientist called Rachel Hertz as the most emotionally connected sense. And that's because I talked about um, smell having a, a speedy relationship with our brain, but it also has an intimate relationship with the part of our brain that deals with emotion, the amygdala. So, yeah. so that's why, and no other sense has this kind of privileged access to that emotional, to that emotional part of your brain. So it's so, so I think that this is why she also did this rather fun thing. She hijacked the Descartes, uh, Descartes um, uh, line and said, I smell, therefore I feel. And so that's what you're, so when you're inhaling that rubber, those feelings that you had as a child come flooding back and like memories involved in this, but it's so powerful. I agree. I have the same, I have the same things with certain smells. I wonder too, you know, it interacts with the specificity of all those odors too, right? Because if you can tell the difference between, you know, a cabbage patch doll and a specific yeah, you know, rubber tears. doll, then yeah. it really is, it, it, it is, a, you know, aligned and associated with a very particular memory, right? Yeah, very particular. And so unless you give this attention, you kind of think they smell like dolls. But I bet you, um, Wayaka, that if you lined up, um, did a blind smell um, um, setup with with various rubber dolls, you would identify the exact rubber doll that you had when you were a child. Because our nose is... (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. You know that, you know that, yeah. I do. I'm a a mother, I've I've purchased many toys. I also taught kindergarten for 20 years. It's a very specific rubber. 
I love this conversation. Yeah, I know. That's great. <laughs> well, Yaka, thank you uh, so much. That is, that's exactly the kind of thing um, that we we were thinking about uh, when we were talking about the show. Thanks so much for that call. Uh, Jackie, I, I wanted to go farther afield. You know, we've been talking about, you know, the normal stuff, smelling. Yeah, um, yeah. I've long been fascinated by proprioception. This, the, how do we know where our bodies are? Even if your eyes are closed, you just you you know where it is. Um, yes. How do we know that? Like, is it really a distinct sense? What do we mean by knowing where our body is? So there are within our muscles there are um, little stretch sensors um, that basically. Um, feed back to the brain and inform us whereabouts our brain is then able to make a map of whereabouts our body is. So if you close your eyes, first of all, you have a sense of where your body is, but then you're able to move your body um, in a coordinated fashion. And this, this sense is kind of, um, it works beneath our consciousness. We're not thinking. I mean, we'd go mad if we had to think of where every single part of our body was at all times. So it's a kind of familiar, automatic sense. Um, and it's one of these senses. It's all it's it's difficult almost to imagine what it's doing for us. It, you know, before um, philosophers have wrangled with it, not knowing quite what it does for us because it's so much part of us. Mm-hmm. And as you will have read, um, I met a man called Ian Waterman who lost this sense. Mm. And on losing the sense, suddenly it becomes patently obvious how crucial this is for every moment throughout uh, of our lives. Because he would um, just because- fall over, right? Like he still had motor control. Yeah. Like there was yeah. nothing, his muscles and his bones and everything were still working correctly, but he just didn't and have still a has, sense. By the way, he yes. still has, he's never got it back. He's never got it back. No, when he, he basically had a nasty virus. I mean, let's think of, you know, a nasty yeah. virus and a, and, a, and a nasty complication to a nasty virus, more to the point probably. And um, he had a fever, his body started misbehaving. It wasn't listening to him. He, he ended up in hospital and when he came round, he basically could not feel his body. If he closed his eyes, it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, when you're, you have a kind of anesthetic, you can't feel pain, you can't feel touch necessarily, but you have a sense that that, that, that limb is still there. He lost that. He said to me, he felt disembodied. Um, I mean, he now no longer feels disembodied because what he's done is he's used his eyes to, and his, his sense of vision to basically reclaim his body. And he, his body had not lost the ability to move. His, his arms were off doing all sorts of things, but he had no idea. So he used his eyes. He would look at that arm, bring it back under control and reclaim it. And he had to learn. Um, he had to break down every human motion into a tinier and tinier component parts and rebuild and with great determination. I mean, he's the most extraordinary man. With great determination, he rebuilt his ability to kind of of locomotion, um, to first of all, sit up in the bed, to swing his legs around and ultimately to walk. Um, But as you say, you know, if, 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 if he loses sight, um, he, 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 he crumples like a ragdoll. I mean, if the lights go out, if there's a power cut or something, he's, he's frozen, he crumples, he can't move. And even he mentioned to me, you know that when you're watching fireworks and that brief bit of blackness you get after you've seen this bright in your face, yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes him stagger. That 
you know, for a moment, wow. that momentary blackness kind of, you know, is that that connection between him and his body is lost and he staggers. So, yeah, that's a secret sense. That's a sense that we all have that we forget about. That's so amazing. And and you use the octopus as a way of sort of describing this kind of remarkable ability to use the eyes to kind of tie his body back together, even though he's lost the sense, because as research is showing, the octopus's arms kind of can operate independently and then be recruited by the octopus's brain into coordinated action. So, so the octopus has the very same um, a stretch, you know, similar stretch receptors in its mus- muscles, just like us. But what scientists found, which was absolutely extraordinary, um, is that they that information never reaches the brain. So its arms will be roving the reef, and its brain, its mind, the head will not get that information. Its brain, its mind will not be aware of where its arms are, like Ian, unless it looks at this, these arms. And so it uses its vision to kind of pull itself together, perhaps. Um, mm. Peter Godfrey Smith, who is a philosopher who's written a brilliant book called Other Minds, um, has also written a little bit about the octopus. And scientists tread carefully um, mm-hmm. um, when you ask them, what is that creature's experience like? Philosophers are much more confident to kind of um, <laughs> <laughs> set off into that uncharted territory using, as, as Peter Godfrey Smith would freely admit, using the information that scientists have found about these proprioceptors or, or any of the octopus's senses, you know, it's, it's also extraordinary because it can taste through its arms. I mean, it, you know, so, so using that information, um, he, he, he takes a kind of um, um, an imaginative leap, and we all do, and I do in the book, to imagine what an octopus's experience might be. Um, and that sense of body, I think, is the sense that is so other. Um, I mean, Ian was delighted that when I told him that of all of mankind, of humankind, um, the octopus had most in common with him. <laughs> so he said, call me Inky, <laughs> which is the name of the octopus in the chapter. Yeah. But, um, so, so, and that's such a kind of, I mean, these creatures, I couldn't resist basically ending the, the last chapter with the octopus because they are, they're more closely related to an oyster than they are to us. And they're evidence that evolution has created minds twice over. I mean, they're exceptional and they're like, they're so other. They are like meeting aliens here on planet earth. We don't need to kind of head shoot off to the stars. We need to focus at what's on, at our feet here on, on, on you know, in, on, on our own planet. We're talking about animal senses and what they tell us about our own with the author of the new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, Jackie Higgins. And we would love to hear from you. What have you always wondered about how you sense the world? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Or what have you noticed about how your pet or other animals experience the world? Numbers 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Uh, Here's a great dog story. Amy writes, years ago, I was lucky to have a job with the U.S. Forest Service as a trail contractor inspector. That sounds sounds like a good job. Some of the lesser used trails could be hard to follow, especially when intersected with animal trails. Luckily for me, I always hiked with my yellow lab, Sunny. I learned to keep her ahead of me and watch her choices at surprise junctions. She always chose the right path. It was remarkable. She was likely following the scent trail of the trail workers. It was a lovely realization. She was a great 
trail partner. Uh, Reed writes, I have a highly acute sense of smell and can't stand dryer sheet smells. I hear you, Reed. As I ride my bike around Santa Rosa, I get hit, hit by dense clouds of sickly sweet artificial scents. I don't understand how people can stand to have these smells on them. On the other hand, I love most smells of the natural world. And Daniel, with a little more philosophical comment, two senses we have that most people don't think of as senses. You can tell when people are speaking gibberish or a language. We have a sense of language built into our brains, uh, a complex sense. And two, we have the sense of living. We can tell if someone is dead or alive. Uh, Let's go to Eric in Guerneville. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, yeah, I hadn't realized uh, how important uh, proprioception was or what a big part it played in our lives till uh, 10 years ago my uh, partner uh, died. And a uh, major contributing factor, I think, in his last few weeks uh, to his death was he totally lost proprioception. So, uh, like, when we would go to stand up or for him to go to the hospital, he had no sense of contact with the floor. Uh, going downstairs was just an absolute freak out because he had no sense of his feet going anywhere, even like uh, feeding himself, because that that motion of your hand to your mouth uh, is governed by that. And he would just miss it and, you know, go into his face, basically. And it was just so discombobulating and so disturbing for him. I really think uh, that, you know, contributed to a large factor. Oh, wow. Gosh, Eric, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, same here, Eric. And well, I also it, it just uh, really made me see. I have background in animal behavior, and really made me appreciate how much uh, it's a part of us, and we really don't have any sense of it, although we rely on it every day. Right. Well, and it in, makes me. Terms... Go, mm-hmm. go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Jackie. No, so go I ahead. was going to say, Alexis, because because the other the other sense that may have been um, going a little bit awry for him, in addition to proprioception, may have been balance. If he was also finding movement um, difficult, I mean, the three the three senses that we use all the time when we're moving are is our vision, our sense of body, proprioception, but also our sense of balance. Um, we forget that. Um, you know, basically being on two legs, and I use Peter to talk about this sense in our mm-hmm. book. Um, we don't think of ourselves as particularly balanced creatures, but the scientists that I spoke to reminded me that being on two legs is an inherently unstable position. Mm -hmm. And therefore taking a step forward was described to me as one of the most daring um, acts of balance in the animal kingdom. So, so, uh, so again, I was trying to pull out the kind of um, a lot of the book is trying to pull out to reveal that within these boring kind of mundane everyday monday morning nonsenses it were just walking down the stairs what um what wonder is within that what mm-hmm. all these senses that are working together to enable us um these things that we take for granted yeah i remember as my kids were growing up and, and learning to walk you realize that you try every single way of not walking before you hit on the way <laughs> of actually walking, right? Because it's just like, you they do. They fall over in every possible way before finally yeah. realizing, oh, okay, this is how to be uh, on on two legs. Um, Eric, yeah. thank you so much for, for that call. I really appreciate that. Um, thank you, Eric. Yeah, you know, and I also, you know, we're going to get to the cheetah um, in, <laughs> in just a second. I, I wanted to <laughs> get to a, a couple more of these comments that are about smell, of course, 
um, you know, people have these incredible uh, smell stories. A listener tweets, scent is so important to me. I'm a professional gardener and often find myself contorting into small shrubs just to get a sniff. I'm constantly pressing my nose into blooms. A fragrant flower triggers bliss. I've wondered what's actually doing to chemicals in my brain. And one other comment for you, which maybe you know what this is, maybe you don't. I've never heard this term. Um, Jackie writes, I have what's called a geographic tongue, and so does my daughter. Mm. We both have very sensitive senses of smell and odor. Do those two go together? Have you ever heard that geographic tongue? I, do you know? So is it, was it Jackie who said Jackie, she has yeah. a geographic? Mm-hmm. So Jackie, meet me, Jackie. I too have a geographic um, geographic tongue. Um, I don't know whether it's connected to... But what um, does it mean? What does it mean? What's a geographic? So it's, you're, uh, it's, it's when my tongue, you know, I think writing this book and being in COVID and trying to kind of be both a mother and a wife and also write the book with people rattling around was a little <laughs> bit stressful. And I think, um, so there are certain areas of your tongue which get a little bit more sensitized and sensitive. And you get, the, I think it's called geographic because it looks a little bit like a map of the world. A pattern on your tongue arises. It, it passes. Um, mine, mine has passed. <laughs> Sorry, we're going into kind of, you know, personal detail here. But I don't think that um, I don't I don't know, um, but I don't think it's necessarily connected to a kind of um, exceptional sense of smell or taste. I do think um, I mean, we talk of kind of exceptional senses and I do in the book and I talk about um, Helen Keller, who. who describes smell as the fallen angel. Um, and mm. by that, I think she meant that we all, um, we, we, we forget how much we're using smell and we stop relying on it. And I think we're all rather brilliant smellers and some people just rely on it more than others and give it more attention and more focus in their world. Um, so back to that lovely comment by the gardener burying their face in the, um, in the kind of um, aromatic fragrance in the garden. Um, I think, I think our, um, we have the ability. It's just a question of application. Hmm. And it does come through again and again in these stories, the way that we can actually tune and train our senses to become better and to notice more of the world, all, all of the different senses. Yes, yes. Yeah. We're talking about animal senses, what they tell us about our own with Jackie Higgins. She's the author of Sentient, a wonderful book. The subtitle is How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'd love to hear from you. You know the number is 866-733-6786. Lines are filling up, though, so you might want to try Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure... The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jackie Higgins, author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. She's actually joining us live from Kenya. Uh, let's bring in Eileen <laughs> from San Rafael. Hi, Hi good morning. Such an, Hi there. Such an interesting uh, conversation. I've always wondered, people have used the term dog smell fear. And I'm wondering, do they in fact smell fear? Do we emit uh, pheromones and what have you when we're scared? And do they do they smell uh, other emotions that we may have? I had a dog that always seemed to know when I was bad oh. and was always there to give me love. So that is my question I put forth. Great question, Eileen. Thanks so much. It's a, it's a great question. And actually, you are so on the money, as we say in England. Um, because when I started writing this book, I had many more chapters, which I couldn't quite fit in the book. But one of them was on, on the sense of fear and pheromones and fear. Um, studies have been done. I was going to, uh, I was going to um, uh, do it on deer um, because studies have been done uh, uh, on deer. I think black-tailed deer, but, but don't, don't quote me on that. Um, and uh, that, that, that they do release an alarm pheromone. So deer will be grazing. And I'm sure... Um, Alexis mentioned I'm in Kenya I was watching today you know in parlor and you know you see these ungulates these antelope kind of grazing and suddenly one will just pick up its head and they all instantly kind of you know seem to know um, some things arise so so there is evidence to suggest that these deer release an alarm pheromone to to alert their mates that something else is around. And I was also doing some research. There was a really interesting study um, done over in America where um, a, um, a scientist um, um, <laughs> in the name of science asked people to jump out of um, uh, helicopters or planes to, to uh, parachute and to free fall for a while and then parachute. And she, um, she, she got them all to wear clean t-shirts and then she did a smell study, um, asking people to smell, you know, regular T-shirts that hadn't been jumped out of a plane and then T-shirts that had, mm -hmm. and found that the part of the brain that deals with emotion lit up when they were smelling of those T-shirts that perhaps had emitted a fear pheromone. I mean, the evidence is not yet there to say um, that humans um, release pheromones. Um, and one of the chapters on the book is called The Sense of Desire and talks about pheromones, the pheromones involved in falling in love and finding mates. And this certainly is the case throughout the animal kingdom. And, you know, one zoologist, Tristan White, says it's so prevalent in the animal kingdom. Why wouldn't we have it? But as yet, it's not been found. And similarly, a fear pheromone has not yet been found in humans. Mm -hmm. But there's one study, there is one study, which is rather wonderful, that may yet, may be the first to, to, to discover that the, the, the concrete concrete evidence for the first um, human pheromone. And that's a lovely study taking place um, in Normandy in, um, in, um, with Benoist Charles, who is looking at babies. And um, it seems that mothers um, release a pheromone that enables the baby to find mm. where they need to suckle. Um, and they know it's a pheromone because they can take that um, that um, sm those smell uh, molecules 
um, from another woman and they will work equally well. Um, it's not individual. It's not specific uh, to the in individual. Yes. Yeah? So this smell, this perhaps this, this pheromone um, deals with the product of love and making sure that because babies, if they don't feed, get ill very quickly. So it's super important, back to us being animals, super important that we start um, latching on and suckling as soon as we possibly can. So pheromones are fabulous. Yeah. You know, um, you mentioned cheetahs before the break, and I do want to get to them uh, before we go to some to some more calls, because it, your points about this are so fascinating. Like what we when you think of a cheetah, everyone out there think of a cheetah. What's the thing that you're thinking of? You're thinking speed. But your <laughs> point is it's not just speed. It's their their ability to remain balanced and agile while moving that quickly. Yes. Absolutely. And Camille Grohe, who is this super, um, super scientist who, who decided to look and see what was going on um, with regards to their sense of balance. And she discovered that they have an exceptional balance organ. Um, and we have we all have our balance organ, which is inside our inner ear. In our inner ear, we have a little structure the size of a, um, a little pea. And part of that is taken up by our cochlea, which is the... Um, organ and the containing the sensors that enable us to hear. But the other part um, is our vestibular um, or balance um, sensors. And, um, and the, 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 you know, the, um, um, the structure of this with its otoliths and semicircular canals is the same and in the cheetah's ear. And so Camille looked at um, all these species of cats. I think she was working for the American Museum of Natural History. So she had at her disposal this huge cache of skulls. And the wonderful thing about this, um, this balance organ is it's because it's in the skull, it's hardened. So you can really study it, study it. So she scanned all these different cats. I love that um, she just like checked yeah. out all these skeletons yeah. right from the museum and brought them to the CT scanner. All these drawers. I know we, we were talking. She said, I'd disappear into the bowels of the museum and just start opening all these drawers and looking up for all these skulls. And it was brilliant. So she had a huge diversity of cat species and she scanned them. Um, so she did this, um, she scanned them all and then analyzed them, plotted a little, make, turned, plotted little points across um, that correlated all these inner ears across the species. And she she discovered that the cheetah inner ear is vastly different. Um, its vestibular system is much bigger than all other cats when you even take in body size in, in, into consideration. Um, so they have a really heightened sense of balance. No surprise. I mean, if you've watched a cheetah, you will see that, um, that its head is kind of like at the same um, um, height above the ground. Its body might be kind of ricocheting and scooby-dooing all over the place underneath it, but its head is in exactly the same position. And that makes it a gazelle-seeking missile. It can then lock its eyes onto the poor impala and, and let loose. And the, and the other thing that was um, interesting, because Camille then carried on doing the research and mapping um, the cheetah's inner ear. And in addition to the otoliths, we have... Um, we have semicircular canals, and this um, enables us to kind of feel if you're imagining you're nodding your head or you're shaking okay. your, you're saying yes, you're saying no, and then you're leaning your ears over to each shoulder. Those describe the various um, movements that we would experience. And 
th those three movements are roughly um, detected by these three mm, um, mm -hmm. carefully positioned semicircular canals in our ear. And what she found was that, again, the cheetah stood out like some <laughs> um, by having really enlarged um, vertical uh, semicircular canals. And as, as I'm, the point I make in, in the book is that a similar thing happened in another family of creatures far closer to home. So, um, which I is the hominids? That's the uh... it's the hominids. It's the hominids. It's us. It's us. And another um, extraordinary scientist, a, a paleo um, biologist called Fred Spohr, for his PhD, decided to look at um, the fossilized inner ear ears of all the hominins, kind of to understand. Uh, it's a brilliant. It was a brilliant piece of sensory biology, but done, um, but looking back at our ancient ancestors, because of course, you know, being bony, these um, these organs would fossilize really well. So it was a genius idea. And because there's been a big debate as to at what point we really learned to walk, at what point um, we realized- ancestors, that right, go, yeah. Yeah. That began began to walk. It's been a big debate in in paleoanthropology. So paleobiology. So, um, so he looked at the inner ear and of the different homonyms and discovered that it was Homo erectus. So here I am sitting in Africa. Um, it was Homo erectus who finally had that modern um, the, the 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 modern structure that we have in our ear with these elongated, uh, vertical semicircular canals. So he and she were the first um, um, of our first of our ancestors to be able to walk with a hop, skip, and a jump to be really superb balancers um, and walk us out of Africa. Such that that chapter is really remarkable. Just all the different components of the surprises of the cheetahs, and then yeah, this that leading it in a kind of roundabout way to discoveries about sort of when human beings became something closer to, to modern humans. It's a, it's a brilliant chapter. Um, let's bring in... It's very... Hmm. Yes, and it's very different from the others, Alexis, isn't it? It was... But I enjoy, I, I really enjoyed doing the research for that one. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. Um, uh, Brad from San Carlos, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. So I, this is a good cheetah segue. I've always wondered why it feels good to go fast or to spin or to fly through the air when you're jumping. Hmm. It's a good, yes. I, I, I'm curious about this too. So are you, so Brad, I take it you're a bit of an adrenaline junkie then. You like fast, fast moving sports. <laughs> well, that's what I was <laughs> You know what I Sorry. Drive, if you drive fast, I don't feel like I'm hitting adrenaline, but you know, still feel yeah. good, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, um, there are various senses, I suppose, involved in, in driving fast. And I suppose the sensation they give you is, uh, for you, is exciting. I mean, I can't, I, I'd be terrified driving fast. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something to, it, it does feel to me like there's something to um, mastering some of the hurtling through space and using your your brain and your muscles and all those systems to sort of yes. stay intact. Like I think about this, you know, running fast, particularly downhill. There's something amazing about not having to look at your feet, but your feet sort of knowing where to go as you go yes. down some trail. That, that that to me is really satisfying. Maybe slightly different, but I think it it's triggering some of the same things. 
Yes, I mean, your sense of vision will be important. Your sense of proprioception will be important. Um, your sense of uh, balance will be important. But also imagine you were talking about, did you say the wind through your hair or the wind on your skin? You're going to be, you know, your sense of touch is going to be activated as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so so, so it's perhaps, perhaps it's the kind of, it's the sensory input. It's the kind of diverse mm-hmm. sensory input that makes it exciting. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Liam from Petaluma. Welcome, Liam. Hey, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Love the show. Regular listener. Oh, hey. First Great. time Thanks. caller. First time caller. Um, this, oh, this thank you for calling, Liam. Really, yeah. Well, this really resonated with me. Um, it, it, I've been involved in making cheese most of my adult life, and I've always been interested in the reactions people have when they've tried it for the first time and obviously having just met me at an event or when we were doing farmers markets things like that I was people would come and there was a a look on their face of satisfaction but almost discovery at the same time and it and for years I've always wondered about how people form flavor preferences and obviously senses are involved in that but it it's led me to kind of be interested in this area um, because it's just been, it's just been so obvious that there are things that people like for reasons that they don't quite understand. And I, yes. I wonder if you've run into uh, anything about how preferences come into are formed out of senses in, in your research. Yes. So interesting. Well, what a great question. Yeah, Thank really you. interesting. And and this, I mean, I, I could go down a rabbit hole with this because it's a really, it's a subject that interests me as well. I mean, what I learned is that um, our sense of taste, which we we often equate with flavor, which as I pointed out earlier on, is completely wrong because flavor is majority smell. But taste, which are these buds, you know, salty, sour, um, bitter, those, um, those, those five, those five tastes. Um, those are pre-programmed. So when we're born, they did this amazing experiment in Israel back in the 70s where they fed babies um, salt and babies would instantly pucker up. Oh, I don't particularly like that. They fed them sugar. They would smile and they'd want more of it. (laughs) They fed them bitter things, these poor little babies. Anyway, (laughs) the scientific um, research has proven that we are hardwired, born hardwired, to have taste preferences, but we're not born hardwired to have smell preferences. Mm. We learn smell preferences. So I think smells are really interesting culturally as well, because something that we may consider delicious and, you know, a good, a good sloppy French cheese in my book is absolutely delicious and irresistible, but maybe to someone in another, across the other side of the world, it's going to be revolting. I think, am I right in saying that Japanese are not particularly keen on cheese? I please forgive me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine there'll be cultures where, what we think is um, is delicious is, is abhorrent. So smell preferences are learned. And again, this is evolution, really kind of tinkering and figuring out how best to um, optimize our chances. 
So interesting. So, so interesting. I, some of our listeners have been writing in with some amazing comments, too. I just want to get to a couple of them. Shandi writes, what I love is the smell of rubber and dirt. Like when you walk into your general big department store, they have the potting soil next to the tires as you're walking in. That combination of that raw, dry rubber and then the undertones of the lush, dense richness of the dirt. I just want to eat it and bathe in it. Now, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that just that's goes to the, the specificity of odors, right? I mean, just the, yeah. not just one of those, but both of those together. I smell, therefore I feel again. Back, yeah, back to that's that right. wonderful, wonderful quote of Rachel Hertz. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mar- <laughs> two, two others. Marla in Berkeley writes, when I was 17, I want to see, I went to see Yellow Submarine during the movie. Someone threw a stink bomb into the theater for years. Every time I saw the cover image of Yellow Submarine, the smell of that stink bomb would come back. And Emily writes on Instagram, I have long been able to smell when someone I'm near to is sick with a cold, including before they know it. I also feel my sight and smell abilities get much stronger at a certain time of the month, and I've wondered if this is related to hormones and some sort of evolutionary function for finding mm. a mate. I know people say this also when they're pregnant, that their sense of smell mm. is incredibly heightened. Right? Mm. Mine certainly did. Yes, it would make sense, wouldn't it? You'd be, um, you want to make sure that you're not going to eat anything that's going to, you know, jeopardize you or the baby. It would make sense. I don't know about studies, though. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. I wanted to give you, um, since we've talked a lot about these specific examples, but, you know, just in a more a more abstract level and, and based on all that you've learned, I mean, how do you think writing this book changed the way that you think about how humans sense and respond to our world? Um, I think, I think, um, I, I'm quoting that Da Vinci um, line again about the fact we, we look without seeing. And I, each chapter that I was immersed with researching and writing, I became completely fixated by that sense. And I think it's, the book asks people to slow up and appreciate how we're sensing the world and to unpick these different senses. Um, And these extraordinary creatures with senses that dazzle and kind of bewitch um, have so much to say about us and how, um, how we are. I mean, I think of zoology as a mirror that we can hold up, the study, the study of animals, to hold up and better comprehend, better kind of uh, take stock of ourselves, because we're part of this huge, grand, epic, sprawling evolutionary family tree. So the book kind of placed me back in, you know, as, as another animal, which, which I really appreciated. Yeah. And, you know, one, one last thing, Mantis shrimp, they don't actually see as many colors as people think, too, right? I mean, we don't have time to fully answer the question, but you do some there's major myth-busting on mantis the tale. shrimp. No, I do. There's a twist in the tale of the mantis shrimp, but I'll say no more. Yes, that's right. You'll have to check out the book. The book is called Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. And we've been talking with the author of this delightful and extremely informative book, Jackie Higgins. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved our chat. And for all the listeners and callers in, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. 
Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. 